Hello and welcome back. This is Prof. Dr. Leanne uh, with our third week of career counselling and I'm looking forward to discuss with you ethical issues and working in organisations and I think this is particularly important in light of COVID-19 with all of the layoffs and the competition for jobs uh, organizations are going to be a lot different than what they have been and so I look forward to discussing some of the realities that I see foresee happening but also what our responsibilities are as career counselors and operating ethically it's a very difficult place to start in the first place without having the exigencies that are going to be occurring around the globe as a result of COVID-19. And I also want to place a caveat here. I am using the American Code of Ethics, the American Counseling Association Code of Ethics, the 2014, and the link is available. And I just want to focus on the primary responsibility of counsellors, and that is to respect the dignity and promote the welfare of clients. And this can come into conflict with the expectations of organisations. And I'll talk more about that in um, class, but at the same time, just want to note that Sometimes with things like workplace bullying and very severe competition for jobs, um, people that work as pay in, paid in-house career counsellors may have to have a very delicate role in operating in the interests of their own clients, meaning the people that work in the organisation. So um, that's a whole other topic, but... I just wanted to have that as a um, underscoring this whole section on ethical principles for career counselling, for career counsellors. So we've started this with the Code of Ethics 2014, the ACA, and the primary responsibility. But section A4A, above all, do no harm. And I think if we can keep those two things as forefront in our minds even when we are being um, pressured to do things that may go against our ethical principles that we do the best that we can in the circumstances and I have discussed that in light of the reality of the huge unemployment rates that are currently occurring and will I foresee get worse um, it's going to be a very difficult um, role to play. So these ethical principles really help us just to guide us because sometimes we just need something to fall back on. And being competent, respecting our clients' rights to choose their own decisions and directions. So what I mean by that, as we've discussed this before as well, um, that clients may choose to do things that we uh, would advise against and 
we should still advise against, but we should still support the client because they are um, theoretically of right mind and sound mind and it is their lives and they have to make decisions that suit their lives. So whilst it is sometimes difficult to support a client in their decision, you sometimes have to just go with what they want. But I will always say, be inform them, inform them of their rights and be very clear that they understand them. We'll talk more about um, informed consent and when a client actually doesn't have capacity to give you consent later. Honour your responsibilities. So the other thing that's often forgotten in this piece is our self-care and our responsibilities to ourselves to perform our positions and the roles and responsibilities that we have. So that's a really key component of our ethical dilemma as a counsellor. And whilst we must make accurate public statements, um, often that's not something that we, we think will come to us in our position, we don't think that we're going to be, you know, broadcast to the world. However, having said that, look at me, I'm doing podcasts that could potentially be broadcast to the world. So just make sure that when you are saying things, you actually have accuracy in your statements. And that is why I really refer you to a code of ethics and um, ensuring that you know what your rights are in your various um, countries that you operate in and what the responsibilities and roles are that you have. And this is another really uh, often difficult one, and it's in all professions, actually. It's respecting counsellors and practitioners from other pro professions as well as your own profession. And when you have concerns, there are very specific ways of addressing those concerns with the person first. And that's whether you're a counsellor, a teacher, um, a lawyer, a, an accountant, all of, all of the different professionals that we would um, say are under white collar label. And respecting our fellow members is just a key component of trying to work in a in a t in a world where we have a global world as has been very clearly demonstrated to us in the last few months and then one of the things that i have been focusing on as you well know is advocating for clients in need and being an advocate and i want to just draw your attention to a7b here Confidentially, confidentiality and advocacy is very key. So you have to obtain consent from your, from your client prior to engaging in any advocacy behalfs, uh, on behalf of them. And this goes to confidentiality and this also goes to um, point two, which is section A4B, respecting the client's right to choose their own direction. So whilst we sometimes want to step in and fix, uh, we have to get informed consent from our client before we proceed to do anything in terms of um, advocacy because whilst we're trying to improve their access to service, their provision of services and work towards the removal of barriers, systemic barriers and obstacles that inhibit their growth, their development, their progress and their access. We can do harm 
by moving ahead without our client really understanding what we are doing on their behalf. So it's a really, ethics are a very big issue. And I, as you know, I'm a very, 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 very ethical practitioner um, because I work with marginalized and oppressed and colonized populations and indigenous peoples and refugees and a lot of people who really don't have um, legal representation or access to resources and that's been sort of a keynote of my career so when I've been in secondary schools and schools working I've always been an advocate but there are times when you have to sort of just um, advocate in a quiet quiet voice (laughs) and I um, if you'd like me to explain that please contact me and we can have a discussion about what advocating in a quiet voice means and sometimes it's going back to what I talked about in the last um, podcast was about actually empowering the client so giving them um, coping mechanisms and ways and tools to move themselves forward and help their self-efficacy and their ability to believe in themselves and their self-esteem and that can be the best advocacy work that you are going to do despite knowing that there are things going on in an organization that really should not be happening. So um, please don't hesitate to contact me to discuss this. So above all, do no harm. So I have talked about this in my career and in my classes across my lifetime, that that is the preeminent code that I work by. And it is in all of our codes of ethics, regardless of career. And it's also in our biblical texts. (laughs) So if you're religious and spiritual, doing no harm. Thou shalt not kill is the first Christian. It's uh, in the Quran and it's in all (laughs) the Torah. It's, It's just a precept that we should understand. But in order to do no harm, we have to be competent. So that means that we can't practice outside our scope of expertise and experience. And that means that we have to have counseling techniques and coaching strategies and assessment devices that we know how to use before we use them on our clients. And it also requires us to keep up to date with our training and know about all the developments and educational changes and philosophical and psychological changes in the field. So, for example, the DSM-5 has been in place since 2013. Upcoming will be the DSM-6. And so there's changes to our diagnostical um, and statistical diagnosis. So we also need, in our competence, to be very aware of cultural backgrounds and worldviews of our clients And if we are from mainstream or, um, as I would say, privileged cultures such as myself, um, just an understanding of some of the things that we need to do to avoid cultural conflicts and just that prevent a client's culture and our culture coming into conflict. 
And the purpose of uh, being competent, being aware, building your education, constantly staying up to date is, of course, to prevent harming someone. And we may still harm unintentionally, but if the goal is to stay ahead of these things and, and prevent that from happening, then we can pretty much go to sleep at night thinking that we've done the best that we can in the circumstances because we can't know all and be all to everybody, but we just do need to be as aware as possible in our field and competent in the use of the counselling techniques and coaching strategies and assessments that we are going to employ in our work. So being competent, it's really also important to know what you cannot do. So can, cannot. <laughs> I can implement this career counseling um, tool. I can do an assessment with that, but I cannot do this because I don't know it so well. Um, and the same with all of the diagnostic and statistical assessment tools. And so it's really important to know your limitations, but to know your limitations of your abilities and not overextend. And that comes back to a self-care competency because we need to take care of ourselves. We are in a helping profession where often we put our own needs aside and we forget that we have needs. So that's being very self-aware and being competent in our self-awareness. So that comes into emotional intelligence and practicing what we preach to our clients. And therefore, just to reiterate, being competent means knowing our limitations, knowing our what our knowledge base is, and knowing our abilities. Number three, respecting our clients' rights to choose their own directions in an ethical context, this means more than just letting the client do as they wish because we also have to keep them safe. And respect in an ethical context means respecting the culture of the client, their right to accessing your services without discrimination and Sometimes that will go to another key in the code of ethics, which is about providing pro bono or free or minimal feed services because all clients have a right to access. Um, but we also have a right to earn money and need to. So it's about basically respecting the client's approach to making decisions and individual ways of looking at life. And that goes back to when I was looking at the CASVA model, just sort of helping them become aware of their decision-making process and then actually helping them move forward if they get stuck and blocked and teach them ways to get out of those. And clients at the end of the day, have the right to choose their own path. So if they've chosen to come into your office and access your services, they have an equal right to pull out of seeing those, accessing those services. Fourthly, honour our responsibilities. And those responsibilities include honouring the laws of the communities in which we serve, 
not just the federal laws, so not just the policing laws and um, the criminal codes, but actually the laws that we abide by as registered practitioners in our particular code. So whether it's career counselling or educational psychology or um, clinical psychology or counselling psychology, there's all um, types of ethical codes and responsibilities that we have under each of those little jurisdictions. So it's really important that we honour our services and target our services towards those clients and profession and employers and communities within which we work and whom we work with. As I mentioned before, number five, we make accurate public statements. Only the degrees that relate to preparation for providing career development services may be used in advertisements. So if I'm um, talking to people and I mention that I have a doctorate or a PhD, I actually have to have that (laughs) and I should be able to provide evidence of that. And if I am interviewed by uh, news or I first often have to get permission to do so from my organisation, A, and B, if I do have that consent to speak with the press or the media, I need to have facts. So don't go into something off the cuff. And the facts should be clearly delineated from opinion. So I often say, I think... Um, when I'm making a statement about how I believe this particular ethical code should work, but the actual ethical code is do no harm. Above all, do no harm. What that means to me means not in any intentional way harming, causing harm to a client. And that's all the different layers and contexts and complexities around that. Some people don't think of the additional layers and complexities, which makes it very hard to um, explain sometimes where I'm coming from because of my experience in the world and my experience with oppressed and uh, colonized populations, Indigenous people and the marginalized in society. So I just often say this is my opinion, (laughs) but often my opinion is based in the ethical code or the law. So um, I have the fact and then I have my opinion about the fact. And as mentioned before in number six, uh, respect counsellors and practitioners from other professions. Because career development professionals come from very different areas, so they can have different subspecialties. I mentioned clinical, I mentioned counselling, it could be educational, it could just be registered counselling, and they may come from other professions as well. So we have to be very careful about stating what we think about a person's services, and it's very perilous and can bring law cases to us. In Australia, we are, I believe, the most litigious society outside of North America, And so that means that if you say something, you can be sued for it. So unless there's clear-cut evidence that a person in the profession is harming the public, and that's very difficult to prove. You can have 
you can have evidence upon evidence upon evidence, so emails, um, recordings, etc., etc. But these may not be admissible in court. So you have to be very, very, very careful about what you're doing in terms of saying um, something about someone's professional practice. In addition to that, when we are talking about our clients' rights and our advocacy for them, that also involves that other layer of bringing the decision of the client into perspective. So that's a, it's a very tricky one. You may disagree with what the person is doing. You may not like what they're doing, but I really... Uh, want to warn you against going ahead and saying anything, especially in the public sphere, um, without first addressing it with the person and going through all the correct channels and then laid out quite clearly in codes of ethics. And that leads us into advocacy. And advocacy is a process in which a professional, and in this case the career counsellor, the career development professional, assumes some or all of the responsibility for representing a client or a group of clients to another group or to a government agency, to the organisation in which they wish to work or are working, to a community agency or a business for the purpose of improving the client's access to resources, services, or jobs. So you may be thinking that by going to the boss of the organization and saying that your client is very unhappy and very distressed and blah, 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 and needs all this, that you are helping them. If you have not received consent from the client, you are not advocating for them because they haven't let you do that. Two, you may actually place that client in more danger, especially in a competitive job environment. If that boss think this, thinks there's something wrong or they're going to have to deal with something, they may fire that client of yours if you have spoken to the boss. So there's a whole bunch of different layers to advocating for your clients in need. And as discussed um, in the last podcast, one of the most important advocacies that we can do for our clients is to empower them and help them to feel that they have some power in any situation and to feel good about themselves. And that's a kindness and a giving and an advocacy that is underestimated in this world. So most of us are well-intentioned and well-meaning and really want to do the best for our clients. So we really do take on this advocacy piece very seriously. But I'd just like to caution you and forewarn you that sometimes there's outcomes and things that happen as a result of our actions that we aren't aware of. And so it's very, very important that we seek supervision, we discuss with others, and first and foremost, we discuss with our clients and talk about what could be some of the possible outcomes of our actions. And so in terms of becoming a career counsellor, uh, the National Career Development Association was uh, formed in 1981 and it was established as a certification program for career counsellors uh, to become competent in our field and to be recognised for the work that we do. 
and the competencies needed by career counsellors world over are the same. So even though um, the particular NCDA is American-based, just as the APA, ACA ethics are and the APA is, <laughs> these competencies are required by all counsellor, career counsellors world over. So you need to understand what career development theory is, even if it is Western-based, how that applies in your particular culture, if it's an American-based and you're in Australia or in Asia or in Europe, how does that career development theory um, apply? individual group counselling skills, in individual and group assessment skills, having information and resources that keep you up to date, as we said, with the competencies and being um, aware of developments. So that is why I constantly refer to the uncertain and unknowable future of COVID-19, but just still trying to keep ahead of the curve as much as is possible. Being able to manage programs for individuals and groups in terms of implementing a career program of counselling, coaching, consultation, performance improvement. So maybe you are sent a client who um, isn't doing well at work and um, there's specific goals that are set out by HR or management that this client needs to improve upon. And so working towards those goals in consultation with a client in matching abilities, capacities with them. And the one that I always go on about is diverse populations and special populations, special needs. And I underscore the need for supervision, 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 and being ethically aware of our legal obligations and the issues that we can face. And that's where supervision, consultation, um, and just all of it interlinks. So it's just a really important piece to have in your work. And then to keep us current, there's always the importance of research and evaluation and keeping up to date with research, doing research and evaluating whether or not your um, assessment skills and your counselling skills fit with your client group and keeping up to date with technology. And I talk about that a lot <laughs> in the current paradigm of COVID-19 and learning and learning and learning about technology, which is an ongoing win-win and frustration for all. So basically, if we want to be a master's of career counseling in the USA, you need to also be a member of the National Career Development Association for a year, hold a master's degree in counseling or a closely related field from an accredited institution. Keep that in mind. There's a lot of change going on with universities now, and there's been a lot of heat on some of those um, fly-by-night education institutions. So be very aware um, of the institution you are in and knowing such as help that it is a very accredited and well-known university. Complete three years of post-master experience in career counselling and complete all the competencies, a supervised practicum in career counselling during training or in two years of supervised post-masters experienced. 
um, under a certified supervisor and licensed counselling professional. And you have to document that at least 50% of the current job duties are directly related to career counselling, and that's in the log. So one of the things that you have to do in your practicum is keep a log of your hours. And so regardless of the fact that this is an American-based thing, this is the case wherever you work in the world in career counselling. So in Malaysia in particular, um, the thanks to the associate professor dr quick um it's a comprehensive presentation of career guidance and counseling by addressing development and trends there's um attention's being drawn to the career guidance development in malaysia and it's over four decades in practice now and there's some discussion um, of the trends by Dr. Quek, who is in Help University, and uh, looking at the policy legislation um, and legitimizing counseling practice under career counseling. So these challenges for you include, for everyone, preparing counsellors to handle career cases in societies which are in transition, and this is going to be the case in COVID-19. So um, we will be all over the map from production-orientated to technology-driven, more and more and more technology, and then um, knowledge economies. And accompanying these um, are associated issues of value systems being eroded and the inability to change just technologically do you have the capacity to uptake all these new online learning options especially if you're in a rural remote community and we just had bushfires in Australia so there was no access to any internet so this would not be happening in Australia had this happened in January or December and again keeping on top of current trends like living and working from home under <laughs> movement control orders. So we can't leave the home, so social distancing. What are the current trends and how does that impact us? And what is the future of career counselling, which has implications for everybody? So there's a, this paper, Career Guidance and Counselling in Malaysia, Development and Trends, um, has been really helpful to us and I would advise you to have a look at it. And I think that that's a good place to stop the podcast at this point. And just to review that for the first half, we've gone through ethics and the code, the American Counseling Association Code of Ethics, and how that applies not just in America, but the basics fit for career counseling across the globe. And then specifically, what are some of the trends in Malaysia? So very interesting to have a look at because I think with COVID-19, this is something that we all need to be aware of. And I shall see you soon.